Well, this is uh, a difficult story, but it's a story that, uh, that Luke helps a preacher with because he tells us what the story is about uh, right at the beginning. Luke tells us uh, that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. How do we pray uh, without losing heart? You know, I don't think that I need to, to tell you that this is not a hypothetical question. Right? How do we pray uh, without losing heart? How do we live our life with God, open to him, bringing our requests to him, living in a, in a dialogue with God in a world where we suffer, in a world where we're often disappointed, in a world where we don't always get what we long for? How do we live that life before God, a life of prayer, without losing heart? I think this question is perhaps the hardest thing that Jesus asks any of us to do. I think this is where the Christian faith gets lived out. And how do we live a life of faith, a life with God, without losing heart? You know, as your pastor, I come to this question uh, somewhat heavy. I'm aware that in many of your lives, uh, this is a real and live question as it is in mine. Some of you uh, in the weeks recently have known what it's like uh, to wrestle with an addiction, an addiction that you have battled against and prayed against for years, if not decades, only to have that addiction begin to reach back into your life and begin to cost you again, to wreck you again. How do you pray and not lose heart? I've known some of you who've had prayers that you have prayed again for years or decades, prayers for a marriage, prayers for children, whether to have them or to see your children flourish and prosper. In the recent months, you've suffered more setbacks. It seems like the answers to those prayers are further away than they've ever been. How do you pray and not lose heart? Others of you, as you look at the nation, uh, as you look at our community and our life together, and you long to see our country led by a leader with wisdom and morality and righteousness, and look at our current spate of options, and you feel despair, you feel disillusioned. In the midst of that, how do you pray and not lose hope? Not to mention uh, the corporate sorrow that we've gone through as a community. We've prayed for the past couple of weeks uh, for our friend Carol, uh, Carol Demons, a woman who many of us knew and loved who suffered an attack that can only be labeled as evil. Uh, she was horrifically burned and is now in recovery. And we don't know almost how to pray. Do you, we all want our sister to live, and yet we know that life for her is forever changed. In the midst of a world where that's possible, how do we pray? How do we pray without losing heart? When prayer seems impossible, when prayer seems to require more faith than we can muster, when prayer seems impossible, but we know that to lose heart is the beginning of death, to lose heart, to begin to shrivel up inside, to recoil back from God, to start to build walls of self-protection, to, to lose heart uh, is to give up on the faith. It's to give up in our lives. How do we pray and not lose heart? And so Jesus takes this incredibly relevant question, this question that we all uh, deal with at a soul level, and he sets out to answer it. And his means of answering it is to tell the most frustratingly vague and bizarre story you can imagine. We desperately need an answer. And so Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what it's like. Imagine that there's this town, 
And in that town, there's a, there's a wicked judge. There's a judge who's shameless. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about how God values justice, what God would have him do. And he doesn't honor people. He doesn't, he doesn't respect people's dignity. He doesn't, he doesn't fear people either. So there's a judge in a town who neither fears God nor people. You understand, in the ancient world, a judge had the power to rule over a city. Uh, almost absolutely. That for a city to have a wicked judge, a judge that you couldn't trust to give justice, left people without recourse. You know what, what it feels like to have no, no ability to get justice in your life. So he tells the story of this corrupt judge. Don't picture a courtroom like we'd have in America. Don't picture a courtroom that's uh, presided over by a judge in a robe and police all around in a clean uh, and orderly environment. Picture a judge maybe at the end of a courtyard, maybe in a small village he would be in a large tent, seated, seated at the top of the courtyard in a pile of pillows or on a throne, giving justice, and around him would have been his underlings, his clerks, people who had worked between him and the people. And within this hallway, within this courtyard, you'd have dozens or hundreds of people, depending on the size of the town, who'd be coming in trying to get their case before the judge. They might have been cases of divorce, divorce settlements. They might have been land disputes. They might have been inheritance battles between brothers and siblings. There been all manner of civil cases that people would come and try to get a hearing before the judge. And if you had a good judge, you would hear the case and, and, and make a, a good determination that was binding within the town. But if you had a corrupt judge, and Israel was often plagued by corrupt judges, you'd have this scene where people would bring their cases to the judge, and the only way to get your case heard before the judge would be to pay off one of his underlings. It would be to give a bribe or to threaten them somehow, to get your case before the judge. And then with a corrupt judge, he, he would he would uh, weigh in in favor of usually the one who gave him the largest bribe. And so here's this woman who comes into this madhouse of a scene. And she comes and she's a widow and she comes alone. Women weren't generally expected to make their faces seen in courts in the ancient world. Usually she would have been expected to have a husband who went in and pled her case for her, but we see that she's a widow, so she has no husband to bring her case. If not, maybe one of her brothers or a father or a cousin, anyone who could speak for her in this man's world would come on her behalf. But not having any of that, she just comes by herself again and again, day after day, seeking justice. She has no power, so she has no ability to coerce the judge into giving her justice. She has no money, so she can't pay the judge's bribe. And so she does what the only thing she can do, which is to try to just wear him out. Just, I'm going to bother him until he deals with my case. I'm going to come day after day until he realizes he can't get rid of me just by ignoring me. He's going to have to answer me. And so finally, uh, the judge says, I love this. He says to, uh, <clears throat> for a while he refused. But afterward, he said to myself, though I neither fear not God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Uh, the, the Greek here literally means so she, that she will not keep giving me a black eye. So he had this feeling that he was just taking face shots from this woman again and again and again. He says, okay, fine. 
You've given me such a headache that I'll, I'll decide in your favor, have what you want, and go, leave me alone. And so Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's what pray, prayer's like. That's what it's like to pray and to not lose heart. What on earth? Uh, how does this story have anything to do with our battle for faithful prayer, for our battle to pray and to keep our heart in the midst of it? Well, it shows us three things. Uh, it shows us something about who God is, uh, something about who we are, and then something about the story, like where we find ourselves in history, in God's dealings with the world. It tells us something about all of those in kind of surprising ways. First, it shows us something about who God is. You know, this is a form of a story that Jesus uses a lot, um, that, that reasons from the lesser to the greater. You might call it a how much more story. So if this judge, who was utterly corrupt, utterly wicked, didn't honor God, didn't fear man, if even he can be worn out by persistence, how much more will God, the God of justice, the God of compassion, the God who reveals himself in Jesus, how much more will that God hear when we pray to him? It's something that Jesus, uh, he tells us something about what God's like by way of contrast. I think Jesus does this because all attempts to show what God's like through likeness ultimately break down, right? And Jesus does a lot of that. The, the scriptural writers do a lot of that, that God is like a shepherd. God is like a father. God is like a judge. He gives us all these things to think about what God is like. And all of them just kind of break down in the end, right? Even the best human father is just kind of a, a loose sketch of what God might be like. Even the most faithful shepherd, the most tender shepherd, is ultimately just a bad caricature of God and his tenderness and his compassion and his grace. And so sometimes Jesus makes his point by contrast in going, okay, this is, this is what this guy's like, and God is so much bigger, so much greater. He's utterly unlike this judge. Because you see, this judge doesn't ultimately care that much about justice. He doesn't ultimately care that much about the right thing being done. But God, God is a God who is just in his very nature. He's so committed, he, he can't but be committed to justice because he is so righteous, so just, so right that he can only pursue it. Jesus says in verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect? We'll talk about that word in a minute. But will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This word justice uh, comes up. You miss it a little bit in the English. But the same Greek root word, dikaio, comes up. It's the word that's at the root of righteousness. It's the word that's at the root of justice and in the root of vindicate. And it comes up over and over. It's what the widow is seeking from the judge. She's seeking righteousness. She's seeking uh, to be vindicated. She's seeking justice. We're told the judge doesn't care about justice, but that God will give justice to his people. You know, the prayer, the cry for justice, is at the root of every prayer. The cry for justice, the cry for the world to be made right, for the world to be as it should be, is at the root of all good prayer. You know, the scriptures tell us a story that God made the world whole and just and right. Right? He made it so that all the parts fit together just right, so that there were no people that had too much and people who had too little, 
So there were no people who used their power against others. So there were no people who lorded over one another, people who wounded one another, people who neglected one another. That he made the world to function holistically, to flourish, so that everyone would have justice. And we're told that because it's, it's who God is, that he's working in history to bring justice back to the world and that he won't stop until he does it. He won't stop until he brings back and puts back together all of the broken pieces back into a whole. Now, we in our lives feel powerless, don't we? Uh, Sometimes to put back together what's broken in the world. My children are, are at an age where their favorite toys are Legos. They love Legos. Um, and so for gifts, they get, they, they probably have a couple dozen little Lego toys that they've put together, or me or their father, or my father-in-law have put together for them um, so that they can have them. And now inevitably what happens when you give a six-year-old and a four-year-old Legos, right, is that you, you spend hours getting them just right and they spend 10 minutes getting them destroyed, right? And so that for the rest of the life of these vehicles, it is no longer the Millennium Falcon, it is now, well, landmines for dad's bare feet in the middle of the night and just loose parts, right? And all of these loose parts get thrown in a crate that then get stuck under their bed. And they'll, come, they'll, they'll pull it back out every once in a while. It's just this mess of Lego parts. And say, Daddy, Daddy, will you build the Millennium Falcon again? And so I'm looking at this mess of parts that belong to a dozen different Star Wars things. They all look the same. And I go, I have to, Daddy can't put this back together again. I don't know where the pieces go. I've lost the instructions. Um, it exceeds my Lego expertise. There is no putting these broken pieces back together again. And that's oftentimes what our, our human life in this broken world feels like. That we have fragments, right? We can half paste them together. I can, I can make half of the Millennium Falcon look right for about another 10 minutes. But we, we just can't bring all the pieces back together again. So we end up with these fragments of broken relationships, broken hope, sin that persists in our lives. We end up with jobs that, that never fully satisfy us and give us the significance we're after. We end up with these broken pieces. And God's commitment to justice is the commitment that God will put the broken pieces back together again that God will heal and make right and make straight again. He'll rectify. He'll bring justice and righteousness back into this world. And all good prayer is praying within the grain of who God is and what he's doing with our world. Right? When we pray for freedom from our addictions, for wholeness within and without, that's a prayer for God to make our own lives right again, to make us the way we should be. When we pray for our struggling marriages, we pray for for reunion, we pray for communion, we pray for intimacy with one another, we're simply praying for marriage to be the way that marriage should be. When we pray for our neighborhoods, when we pray for the poverty of our city and the violence of our city, we're simply praying for God to remake the world in the way that it should be. This is why Jesus instructs us to pray, what thy will be done, thy kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. One of the great tests of our prayers, or are we praying for our kingdom, for our agenda, or are we praying according to God's character, according to his grain of the universe, of what he's doing? When we pray those kinds of prayers, we can have hope that God will answer them. 
He will answer them. We may not see the answers in the fullness that we long for in this life. Right? In fact, we won't. We're always praying just for foretastes. But one day we will see the answer. I've told the story uh, before of my friend Scott, who was in our church uh, in Orlando, a church that I pastored, a man who eventually uh, passed away from a probably a five or six year battle with cancer. And we prayed for Scott. We prayed with Scott. Scott was a deacon in our church. And I'll never forget uh, Scott in this last round of, of chemo treatments he was going through with, with tears in his eyes. While people were praying, God, we beg you, heal Scott. Heal Scott. Lord, heal Scott. To see Scott with tears in his eyes pray, Lord, I know that you are going to heal me. I don't know if I'll taste that healing in this life. But I do know that I will walk again, I will run again, I will play with my granddaughter again, that I will have life and wholeness, maybe in this life, but undoubtedly when you bring justice, when you bring rightness, when you make us whole again. That's what we lean into in prayer. Martin Luther King uh, has a great quote uh, that we love to quote. He said uh, that the, the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice, right? It's long. We, don't, we can't always see what it's doing. We can't always see the end, but it's a long arc, but it inevitably bends towards justice. It's a quote that we love to use. Politicians use it, um, but inevitably in public discourse, we secularize it. And so it sounds like what Dr. King was meaning is that, you know what, if left to itself, the world will arc towards justice. And we forget that Dr. King was a Christian pastor and what he meant, and what Christians mean when we confess that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, is not that it's just going to happen to end up that way, but that God is a God of justice, that God is active in his world, and that if the arc of the universe bends towards justice, it's not on accident, but it's because Jesus, the king of the universe, takes it in his, his nail-scarred hands and bends it that way. He makes it work. He moves our lives towards justice, towards fullness. That is the God that we pray to. So it tells us something about who God is in this story, and Jesus tells us something about who we are. Something about who God is, and then something about who we are. Again, he says in verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect? Will not God give justice to his elect? What he's saying here, this word elect, this means God's chosen. The people that God has set his love on, this is the way that God describes his church. It's the way God describes his people. It's not the people who are good enough. It's not the people who figured out their own lives. It's not the people who pray right and don't lose heart. It's his, it's his loved ones. It's his beloved. It's those that he, has sought, that he has sought after from the foundation of the world that he set his love and affection on. The beginning of praying faithfully in a broken world means that we learn to, to pray to God as his beloved, as his chosen beloved people, that we pray to him as his beloved. But then he also tells us in the story that those people, those very people that are, that are called his beloved, that are called his chosen, in the story they're represented by a widow. Widows were uh, always in the ancient world uh, sought, God's law in the Old Testament sought to protect them almost above all else because they were the most vulnerable people in society. They were powerless and they were weak. 
without any resources of their own. And so God set out to, to make sure that they got justice. And so the right posture for God's people in prayer is living with these two things. One, we're his delighted, beloved, chosen loved ones. But we're also weak. We're also powerless. We're also humble. We're also vulnerable. So we come to God with great, incredible boldness, knowing that he loves us. Irrespective of our faithfulness and our goodness, he loves us. But we're small and we're weak and we're humble. And so we come to him from a posture of dependence, of littleness, but also of incredible boldness. If you want to learn to pray, we need to learn uh, what it means to be God's beloved. You know, if you go to prayer, which I think is, is human nature to do, we go to prayer to find out if God loves us. Right, so I'm going to tell him what I need. I'm going to lay out my requests. I'm going to tell him all the stuff that I think I can't live without. And then if he answers it, if he gives it to me, then I'll know that he loves me. Right, if he gives me the job that I'm after, if he gives me the family I'm after, if he gives me the bride that I'm after, if he gives me the, uh, the, the, the house that I'm after, if he gives me all those things, then I'll know that God loves me. And if you do that, if you start making those kind of demands of God in prayer, God, give me this. I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. If you don't do this, then I, won't, then I think you don't love me. If you make demands of God, you can only suffer loss of faith when your prayers aren't answered in the way that you want them to be. You can only, you can only grow bitter in your heart over time because you've, you've made these demands that God hasn't come through on. We have to learn the difference between making requests and bringing our longings to God and making demands of God. But in prayer, God's beloved, come to him knowing, you know what, I, I know that I'm loved by you, not because of whether I get what I want or not. I know that I'm loved by you because of what you've done for me in Christ. And I bring my prayers to you as someone who already knows themselves to be your child, to be your son, to be your daughter. And then you can pray and not lose heart. Actually, even the waiting, even the silence, even the seeming absence of God's active intervention. For God's children can become a place where they learn greater trust, greater humility, not bitterness, but deeper uh, intimacy with their father, even in the midst uh, of their waiting. So we learn something about God. We learn something about us. And this parable has a lot to say about where we are in God's story, with where we are in this story that God's working from, from redeeming all things through Jesus and awaiting for his return. Jesus gives a couple of, of kind of time-related uh, things as he explains this parable. He says, will he, that's God, delay long over them? He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He'll give justice quickly. And so he's answering this question. You know, imagine if you're, if you're Jesus' original audience for this parable. You're one of these disciples, one of these people of God who've been crying out now for hundreds of years for justice, for righteousness, for God's intervention. And yet you find yourself still living in a world of injustice. You find yourself living under a pagan king, Caesar, crying out for justice, and then Jesus comes along. Someone that you believe to be the Messiah, to be the one who's going to liberate Israel. And so you leave everything behind to go follow him, believing that he's going to bring justice here and now. And so when Jesus says, Will he delay long over? You know he's going to bring justice quickly. The disciples could only have heard that and said, yes, it's time. 
God is going to bring justice. He's going to throw off the pagan empire. He's going, to rect he's going to rectify things. He's going to give his people prosperity. And yet, what did they have in front of them? The very next chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, to the praise of the people. A chapter later, he starts talking very troublingly about his death. And then in a, less than a week, his disciples would have witnessed his crucifixion and his burial, his trial. They had a lot of suffering, a lot of doubt, a lot of pain left to go through until they saw what Jesus says is his quick justification. Quite frankly, there is no way. If you told them that 2,000 years later that God's people would still be suffering and waiting and longing for him to come, they would have said, no, he said quickly. He said, he said soon. And so we have to understand that we live somewhere in the midst of this story that Jesus is telling. Between his cross where he secured for us, secured for us life with God forever, in his return to make all things right. And in the grand scheme of things, redemptively, in the grand scheme of eternity, to God, that's quickly. That's soon. But the reality is in our lives, it doesn't feel quick. It doesn't feel soon. It means that we live our lives like this widow, confronted daily with our longings, daily with our unanswered, seemingly, prayers. For our unrequited and unfulfilled longings, it doesn't feel quick. It doesn't feel soon. And yet Jesus tells us that it's all already accomplished. It's all as good as done because of what he's done for us on the cross. And so he answers, uh, he, he leaves with this question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, I think that really is the question at the root of, uh, of our praying life. That the, the line between faith and unbelief between faith in God and outright atheism lies in how we live with these unanswered or seemingly, seemingly unanswered prayers, how we live with the experience distance of God in our lives, how we live with that without losing heart, I think is the line between belief and unbelief. Thomas Halleck is a, uh, a Czechoslovakian theologian, words you don't get to say often, he lives in a, in a country that for most of his life uh, was, was behind the Iron Curtain. He grew up in a communist-run Czechoslovakia. He became a believer at the age of 18. Uh, he was ordained a priest in the underground Catholic Church shortly thereafter. Uh, he taught in universities that met in secret uh, for much of his career because he couldn't publicly teach. He administered the sacraments and shepherded the church in secret, aware of if they got found out that he would face certain death. And so in his life, he experienced the, the revolution in Czechoslovakia and now being able to, to write and to carry out his ministry in this world that's, that's still overcoming the scars of what they endured uh, under communist leadership, a country that's still one of the most atheistic countries uh, in the world. And Halleck and it, he has this wonderful book called Patience with God. And he has this incredible observation that he says both the, both the atheist and a certain type of religious fundamentalist have the same basic problem, is that they're unwilling to deal with God's seeming absence and to wait for him with patience. Right? The atheist looks out on a world where people suffer, 
where things like the Holocaust happen, where things like 9-11 happen, where, where the human community is still so fragmented and, and suffering, the atheist looks out on that world and says, God is dead. Right, A certain kind of naive fundamentalism also looks out in that world and says, oh, it's not so bad. Right? God's doing stuff. It's great. It can't, they refuse to enter into the depths of the hurt and the questions that, that God's seeming absence brings up. And Hollick says, no, no, no. What God requires out of us is patience. That faith is patience with God. It's looking out at our lives and at our world and where we long to see God do more than he's done, more than he's doing, and being willing to be patient with God. He says this, the experience of God's silence and God's hiddenness in this world is the starting point and one of the basic factors of faith itself. He says as he ministers to atheists in his country, that he finds himself at times feeling like he has more in common with them and their questions uh, than he does with some people who share his faith. And he says this. He says, I am not saying to atheists that they are wrong, but that they lack patience. I am saying to them that their truth is an incomplete truth. That if we look out on our world, if we look out on our suffering and say, surely God is not to be found in this, then we're just lacking the faith to have patience. With God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Persistence in prayer, rooted in patience with God, knowing that God, because of who He is and because of His great love for us and because of what He's done for us already, will bring the answers to our prayer, will bring the healing and the hope and the justice that we long for in His time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess that I often lack patience. I often look at, at this life and I experience doubt and I experience setbacks and I experience hurt. And, and it's easy for me to believe that you are nowhere in it, uh, that you've left me behind somehow. And yet, Lord, we trust by faith uh, that you, based on what you have done, you've created us, you've redeemed us, you've sent Jesus to die for us, that you will bring to fruition our deepest longings that you will set straight everything that sin has broken in our lives and in our world. Give us faith to long and to wait and to pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.